just start. Like, just stop doing what you're currently doing and just start because the idea is never going to be right. The first direction is definitely not going to be right. Like, the only thing that you know for sure is whatever your idea was on the first day is wrong on the second. But you can't get to the right idea if you don't get moving. From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, By All Means. 45 million American children play and organize sport. If you're the parent or coach of one of them, you likely rely on a smartphone app called Sports Engine to import games and practices straight to your calendar, to manage communication with the coach and all the other administrative stuff that goes along with youth sports. Sports Engine is the leading provider of enterprise software and mobile apps used by youth sports teams across the country. Today, the Minneapolis-based company is owned by NBC Sports, but it was founded in a dorm room by Justin Koffenberg, Carson Kipfer, and Greg Blasco. Now you might be asking yourself, what did a bunch of single guys in their early 20s have in common with the busy parents and sports coaches who use this app? Well, not much. But Justin's dad not only coached hockey, he coached his kids to think up business ideas. So when Justin saw his dad drowning in team rosters and fees and paperwork, he got busy solving for the highest mission, making his dad's life easier. The start of Sports Engine was a pretty personal one. It was basically my dad, you know, telling my brothers and I at the kitchen table that we need to invent something to make his life easier. And that was uh-huh. originally how it started. So tell us, where was the kitchen table? And were, were you uh, a, a big athlete as a kid? Yeah, I had. So I grew up in mostly Shakopee, Minnesota with three brothers and uh, my mom and my dad. Where are you in the lineup? I'm the oldest. Okay. And uh, all four of us boys played, we all played hockey, we all played baseball, we all played golf, soccer, we played a ton of sports. Yep. And uh, my dad had, he commuted for work. He was in technology, sold like large server systems, things like that, mm-hmm. and would come home from work every single day. And for my entire childhood, he, we would ask him, you know, like, how was work today, dad? And the answer was the same, even when we were far too young to hear it, he would just say, it was shitty <laughs> every single day. <laughs> so you learned that word. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And he answered it the same way my entire childhood. Oh. And he ultimately gave all of his spare time to the thing he actually cared about, which was teaching kids sports mm. and, you know, mostly hockey, but frankly, all sports. So pretty much every weekend, every evening for my entire childhood was, you know, hanging out with my mom and my dad at the rink or at the ball field. Or at the golf course, and that's what made him happy. He coached your teams? He did. Okay. He did. So we had a kitchen table in the house in Shakopee, and he hated his job so much that we would have our family meeting once a month, uh-huh. and he'd make us all sit around the table and try to invent something to make dad rich. Wow, and, I uh, love it. That was before Shark Tank. <laughs> that, was, that was before Shark Tank. Yes, this might have been a poor man's version, maybe a homeless man's version of Shark Tank, but there we were around the kitchen table. Did you ever come up with good ideas? We designed probably 100 different versions of a handheld skate sharpener, none of which were successful in Mm -hmm. the end. Uh, Countless other awful ideas. Um, So no, the answer is no, we didn't. 
But you can't go through that every month for your entire childhood and not want to work for yourself. At yeah, that point. so interesting. And I mean, it, it's amazing. I think we forget how how entrepreneurship has changed and how that didn't seem like a career path 20, 30 years ago. Right. And it's so different today. Yeah, it, it, it wasn't. And, you know, even my mom and my dad, who were, you know, these entrepreneurs who were having these family meetings, who were encouraging their sons to think of ideas. You know, even they were entirely freaked out when I came home from college one day at, at Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and said that I'm going to run a painting company and uh, I'm going to be an intern at College Pro Painters, hmm. which was my first kind of official foray into entrepreneurship. And uh, the idea that I was going to go do something for myself was terrifying to them. Yeah. And, you know, I dealt with months of suggestions about what, you know, real job I might consider instead. So when you growing up where you're, you know, dreaming up products, did you think when you set out to go to college, were you thinking, I want to start a business? I, I was. Yeah. I mean, to me, it felt like, you know, for better or worse, my dad coming home every day telling me how he felt about his own job mm -hmm. and then having these, you know, family meetings where we're dreaming up products. It was like a foregone conclusion that I was going to do something for myself. Hmm. I'm, I'm not sure it was even as perfectly clear to them as it was to me, but to me, there was like a 0% chance I was going to work for somebody else. You didn't want to go to General Mills or some 3M, some big company. No, no, I didn't. And, you know, in the times where I had a weak moment, you know, because you do, you see your friends around you having success and they're having internships and they're getting paid and they're, <laughs> you know, going to an office and, and it all feels very successful. And you know, it's pretty tempting to kind of throw away what you're working on to go do something that, you know, feels a little bit more in line with what everyone else is doing. And my dad actually did give me a good piece of advice when I kind of brought that to him. He said, you know, listen, the relative cost of failure at this age is really pretty low. Um, if you completely fail, if this idea is a total flaming hole in the ground, you know, what are you, a couple years behind your classmates? You can go get another job if you want to. Mm -hmm. And you can probably spin this terrible experience into a pretty good story on your resume. So really, the cost of failure is just not that low at this age. So yeah. just just do it. Yeah. Um, what did you major in in college? Economics. Okay. And did you start working on your first business idea while you were still in school? I did, yeah. So I had, so I was running the painting company while I was in college, and I was playing hockey at the time in college as well. So I had this kind of like dual view where I was, you know, an entrepreneur. At the same time, I was an economics student. At the same time, I was a hockey player. And we would have the captain of the hockey team or one of the captains of the hockey team also sit on the local youth hockey association board. So I had this point of view about how amateur sports were running in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and I was having all these aha moments. So in my dad's 30 plus years of helping to run Shakopee Youth Hockey, he'd tell me about the trials and tribulations, and now I was seeing them myself. So from the point of view of youth hockey, you know, and economics, you know, and the painting company, you know, came kind of the next idea, which was to build sports engine. At the time, we called it Puck Systems, which was only going to be a software solution just for hockey associations. So we actually started incubating that uh, in the dorm room. What was the problem you were trying to solve? It was effectively that people like my dad gave away their nights and weekends for their whole life and got paid zero. And most of the nights and weekends that they gave away were to really almost no benefit to them nor to the young players because they were spent on administrative work. Most people get into youth athletics because they want to put smiles on kids' faces and they want to teach them the game and they want to help them. 
but in reality, they sit behind mountains of paper every evening and every weekend, and they deal with things like player registration and cashing checks and player payments and scheduling and tournament scheduling and referee coordination and coach coordination, and they end up doing nothing that looks at all like putting smiles on kids' faces. Mm -hmm. So we basically wanted to give them all those nights and weekends back so they could actually do what made kids happy and what made them happy. It's so interesting that you yourself were not a dad yet when you were doing this. I mean, it was from observing your own father and just knowing sports that you had this idea as a college student. Yeah. You know, I think when you're running a company, which, I mean, man, like if I could encourage young people to start a business even before they're comfortable trying it, I would just push them to do it. Like like my dad said, the relative cost of failure is low and it gives you this interesting perspective. So I just started looking at every problem like an opportunity, like a potential new company. And when I'd hear from my dad that he was stuck behind a mountain of player registration paper at home in Shakopee, and then I would go to the rink and I would see that the Eau Claire youth hockey counterpart to my dad is stuck behind a mountain of paperwork on his nights and weekends as well. It just starts to help you realize that there's a real opportunity. So what were you going to bake into this? This was going to be a, a web app or, or how were you looking at this? And did you have um, development skills? Did you know how to do that? It was pretty early days, you know, so this was, so I was in college from 1999 to 2003. So this is 2001, 2002. So this is pretty early days of shopping carts and being able to even take a payment online and, you know, relatively kind of web 1.0 content management systems. So frankly, a lot of this was really, really hard to build. Mm -hmm. And I was fortunate to meet my co-founder, Carson Kipfer, in the dorm room at Eau Claire. And I was then connected to his friend, Greg Blasco, one of my other co-founders, also in the dorm room in Eau Claire. So the first version of the company was actually called Third North because it was based on third floor north wing of Murray Hall, which was Carson's <laughs> bedroom, Carson's dorm room. And that's where all the work was done initially. But uh, Carson was a very, very talented front end designer, graphic designer. Good to have one of those, right? Uh, critical. Yeah. <laughs> we couldn't have done it without it. And uh, Greg was a hardcore software engineer, computer science major, mm. architect. And then we ended up with a fourth co-founder, Mike, who was also a very, very talented software engineer and architect. So the four of us kind of divided and conquered and started building the first version of the app, which was a PHP-based web application that effectively allowed a sports organization to have a website and later on process payments. But it was, I mean, we were writing everything totally from scratch because there were no existing tools to utilize. Did you, given that you were relatively young and and had not had the experience of being that youth sports coach yourself, did you do a lot of interviewing? Did you talk to people? Did you have a list of like, these are the, the things that it needs to have baked into it to be useful to someone like my dad? Yeah. So he was, so Dave was, our, my dad was effectively our chief product officer in the early days in the uh. sense that every time we would create a new piece of code or a new tool or a new addition to the application, we'd show it to him. Inevitably, it was wrong for exactly the reason you just mentioned, which is that we weren't actually, you know, doing these things. We weren't actually sports organization administrators administrators or moms or dads. So inevitably we would build it in, you know, our view of what would work, but it <laughs> wouldn't actually solve his problem. So more often than not, he effectively told us to go back to the drawing board. Uh, but that was ultimately how we got, you know, the product to be, you know, product market fit and an actual solution. And then we just started selling before we should have, which I would highly recommend. Really? Like, you should just start selling when you are so uncomfortable and just totally embarrassed by the product. <laughs> 
love it. Okay, interesting advice. So what, when did you start selling and what were you selling for starters? In the early days, it was the hacked together, you know, PHP version of the application that sometimes worked, sometimes didn't, largely would crash during demos, which I would inevitably blame on a bad, you know, Wi-Fi connection <laughs> right. or something. Always someone else's fault. Yeah, exactly. But uh, no, it was back then it was just that. It was the very simplest ability for a sports organization to publish a calendar, to communicate with mom and dad, to have a website, to, you know, have links to resources, a very, very simple communication tool. And everything was done in person. So I had my old Jeep and we had a big, huge like projector screen that we'd load in the back of the Jeep and a tabletop projector and this, you know, monster of an old laptop. And we just crisscrossed the upper Midwest, knocking on doors at hockey associations and putting up posters in bathroom stalls and putting brochures on concession stand counters and trying to get a meeting with an association president where we could fold up the screen, turn on the projector and pitch our software. What was the reaction? Uh, I would say in the early, early presentations, you know, like driving to the New Ulm VFW, you know, to their <laughs> board meeting and putting up the projector, those ones weren't as successful because I wasn't polished, the product didn't always work, um, but there was enough of a spark where the product kept getting better, you know, the pitch kept getting a little bit better, and then when it finally did click, I'll never forget it, in Prior Lake, Minnesota, to Prior Lake Youth Hockey, it was like magic. Like then it started, it went from basically four years of zero, four years of no paychecks, four years of running out of money, credit scores plummeting, customers saying no, everything breaking. Like it was, it wasn't a couple of months of this. It was years of just absolute failure effectively. But when it worked, it was magic. And association saw for the very first time they could actually communicate with their parents. They could actually collect money. They could actually publish a schedule. And then, frankly, it just started selling extra really quickly. And in that in that four year time period where you're kind of going door to door to all these associations, were you improving the software? Is it, is it just that you finally hit a point where you had this all figured out? We did. I would say, so, so yes, that, that's correct. It did come at a real kind of price because we reached a certain point where some of the early technical decisions that we made with the original PHP version of the application were just flat out wrong. And we had done what we thought was the best way to do it. And, you know, we were basically incorrect. We had architected it in a way that couldn't scale. So we got to about 50 customers through that, you know, hand-to-hand -hand combat, in-person pitching on the original application. And the original app basically broke. So we went through this. It was four years, not less, in part because in the middle of it all, we had to blow up the entire application and start over. Wow. And had to rebuild the entire company in more modern technologies and Ruby on Rails and effectively start over. So why do you think it's a good idea to go get paying customers before you're ready? Well, didn't that just, I mean, did it, didn't that add a lot of pressure? It, it did. Did but... you have to return checks? Yeah, yeah, we had some awful financial moments, uh, you know, exactly as, 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 as bad as returning checks. I think what I would say, though, is that, you know, when you're starting a company, particularly in software, there's this concept of product market fit. And product market fit doesn't mean a couple of people buy it. Product market fit means that to not just one customer, not just 10 customers, but to 100 customers, it's magic and it's life changing. And then there's actually pull where they are asking you for the product. You're not just pushing it on them. And achieving that is really, really difficult. And it's often achieved by the tiniest little industry specific nuances. It's almost never because your product vision was right or wrong. 
It's almost always because you refined, then refined again, then refined again, then refined again, and you finally put something out that changed people's lives. And it's a it's basically impossible to do that without customers giving you constant feedback. And they don't give you constant feedback unless they're paying you. So I just mm. think I think it's almost impossible to get to true product market fit without paying customers just beating you up every day. But they were patient enough or or saw the potential of this. And it's it's hard to believe that in the early two thousands sports teams didn't have websites. There wasn't a way to just go online to pay or register or get the schedule or have it download to your phone. It's hard to believe how much has changed. They they were patient, um, you know, some more than others. Um, <laughs> but what I will say is that, you know, a lot of these people, it wasn't a small problem we were solving. It was like a life-changing problem. You know, to people like my dad, that's 30 plus years of seven days a week of doing Nothing that has to do with, you know, helping around the house, nothing that has to do with, you know, playing with the kids at home, nothing that has to do with their job, volunteering, just giving away tens of thousands of personal hours on nights and weekends to help run a youth sports organization. So what we were proposing to do was really life changing. And there were early websites that they used, but it was this concept of democratizing access and democratizing communication because our application wasn't something that had to be hard-coded. You didn't just have to be a software engineer to make an update to the calendar or an update to family communications. You could give permission, and anybody in the sports organization in a leadership position could log in and do it themselves. And that would then remove these people like my dad from being these terrible bottlenecks at the top. So it was a big, big problem we were solving. So they were patient in that regard, which I'm forever grateful for. Did most of the research and development happen while you and your co-founders were still students? Or did you kind of take this with you when you graduated? Yeah, equal parts. So we were you know, we were building it in the dorm room. Then we were building it, you know, after we were out of the dorm room, but still in college. And then, you know, after graduation, we stayed in Eau Claire and we rented an office in the old Uniroyal tire plant which for $300 a month, it got you a thousand hmm. square feet of a, you know, cube, you know, effectively without heat. But it was Carson and I from, you know, basically 8 a.m. to midnight, seven days a week for years Wow! in uh, in that building, just trying the next iteration and the next iteration and doing anything we could to survive. So yeah, the, the R&D was really influential in the early days um, because I was still like helping the Youth Hockey Association. We were in college, um, but it, it never stopped. It just continued. When did you change the name? <laughs> we we were we are awful marketers, awful <laughs> brand people. It was Puck Systems because we thought, well, we'll sell this to hockey associations. This is what we know, mm -hmm. and then a basketball association called. So in our brilliance, we started Hoop Systems as an uh. entirely separate LLC, <laughs> which was followed by Hardball Systems, which was followed by Corner Kick Systems, which was followed by Pigskin Systems. <laughs> You're very committed to systems. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty soon we had a bookshelf full of LLC binders and new corporations we had started for every given sports vertical, which was an awful decision. How long did it take you to realize maybe we just need one name for all of this? Longer than it should have, I'm embarrassed to say. <laughs> we had different business cards. We had on the backs of our cordless phone phones in our office, there were stickers on the back of each phone. So you would pick up the right one when it rang and answered as hoop systems or <laughs> puck systems or hardball systems. That's hilarious. Oh, it's embarrassing looking back on. <laughs> um, but it was, so it was probably a couple of years of that before we called it Team Sport Technologies, Okay. which of course then was, you know, equally inept because then we had golf clubs call and swimming clubs call, which were not team sports uh. organizations at all. 
at which point every t- team sport technologies was on everything. So then mm-hmm. we abbreviated to TST, uh, TST media. I don't know why we added the media, but we didn't want to change our legal <laughs> contracts. We thought TST was close enough to team sport technologies, at which point then it became sport engine, but we couldn't afford to buy a domain that actually was spelled correctly. So it was sport N G I N ah. until at which point we uh, were acquired by NBC and they forced us to pay a proper amount to buy a real domain name. That is hilarious. So during all of those changes, though, the one thing is the phone is ringing from all these different organizations. Obviously, the word is getting out that this is a product that's going to help in whatever sport you're in. How did the word start to spread? You know, so in the early days, it was literally guerrilla marketing, which you know, it's interesting. And looking back on it, we tell companies all the time nowadays to, in the early days, it's okay to do things that don't scale. Like forget about getting your Google ads right or your Facebook ads, your Twitter ads or your demand gen or any of this. Just do things that don't scale. Just find a way to your first 100 customers. We didn't know that advice back then. We were just doing it because we didn't have any money and we didn't know what to do. But those first 100 customers came when we literally printed 500 physical posters and bought a bunch of rolls of duct tape. And we drove to every hockey rink in the upper Midwest and we would go inside the men's room stalls and duct tape them up to the inside of the door in the stalls, which we thought was as good a spot to catch people's attention as any. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then we would basically take a brochure holder full of a bunch of like trifold brochures put the little 3M sticky tapes on the bottom of it, peel off the bottoms of the sticky tape, (laughs) and then set it on the concession stand counter when pretending to order a hot dog or something and then slowly backing away. Uh And then it was stuck on the counter forever. Some of them are still stuck on counters Mm -hmm. around Minnesota. (laughs) And that that was all. And and the phone started ringing from that. Uh, Well, do you remember what you said on those flyers that, because obviously you were connecting. Everybody knew this was a problem and they wanted a solution. On the poster itself, I I still have a copy of the poster. It's actually my old hockey skate where I've torn the laces out of it. And then we threaded a blue Ethernet cable through the hockey skate where the laces used to be. And it said the Hockey Association website solution. And then on the trifold brochure, it actually, you know, was a little bit, Uh uh, you know, fuller text around exactly what it did. Uh, And So the poster didn't say much. Honestly, it was pretty simple. I think people were just intrigued. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So um, at what point, so when by the time you switched to the name Sports Engine, spelled wrong, um, did you have the product as we know it today or, or where was it at? Yeah, good question. I, I would say the enterprise product was, you know, substantially similar or, or at least on the right track. So Sports Engine, along the way, we basically had to pick a lane. So we didn't have enough resources. We had raised some angel money in 2009 and then raised some venture capital in 2011 and 12, but we're still operating with limited resources. And we reached a point where we had to decide, are we gonna be an app for mom and dad, or are we gonna be an enterprise software solution for running a sports organization? Mm. And we decided to be an enterprise app for running a sports organization. So hardcore FinTech tools, payment processing tools, player registration tools, uh, coaching tracking tools, scheduling tools, like big, tough, like hard software problems to solve Mm -hmm. to run the logistics of a sports organization. And that's the lane we picked. So we dedicated ourselves to tools that furthered that vision. And then by the time we changed the name, call it, you know, 2013, 14, 15, that application continued to get better, but architecturally, like that was actually pretty well set and was working really well. 
Unfortunately, that forced us to totally neglect the other side of the business, which was the mobile application, the mom and dad communication tools, and we frankly left the door open for competitors to come in on that side of the business, which ah. matured later, but at that time was basically non-existent. And did competitors come into the space? They did, yes, yeah, specifically through that door that we left open. There were a few of them, you know, one of the better known ones was, you know, and still is TeamSnap, which effectively made the exact opposite decision we did at the exact same time. We founded our companies at the same time. We were friends as kind of founders in the same industry. And hmm. when we decided to go kind of on the enterprise software side, they decided to go to the mom and dad communication and the consumer application side. And they did a really nice job with that. And in some ways we were complimentary, but clearly we wanted to go into their lane later and clearly they wanted to come into ours mm. later. So there was always this kind of competition behind the scenes, but they did something that at the time, you know, we really didn't. Did you make the decision to go in the enterprise route because you thought that's where the money was? That was the bigger opportunity? You know, it was, we were trying to be self-aware and we believed that we were, that we had a team of very talented software engineers, very talented architects, and through people like, you know, our early customers, people that looked like my dad, we felt that we had truly novel insights into the hardest problems that a sports organization faces, and we had the software engineering horsepower to solve them. Things like automatically generating a schedule for thousands of teams simultaneously across different disparate sports facilities, across a myriad of different kind of like, uh, you know, guardrails and requirements around that schedule. That's a hard engineering problem. You know, processing billions of dollars in credit card payments, flowing those all through an intelligent credit card processing brain, uh, having treasury management capabilities on top of those funds and tools to distribute those funds. That's a hard engineering problem. Mm -hmm. We thought we were good at that. We had the God-given right to be the best in the world at that. We didn't think we were good consumer software people. We weren't. Mm. We didn't think that we were good at determining what the next trend would be, what the next app would be, how mom and dad wanted to interact with their phone. Yeah. Uh, we just felt that we weren't equipped to do that. So it's interesting. It, it isn't that you didn't see that that was also a business opportunity. You just didn't think you were ready for it. We didn't. Yeah. We had, you know, we got a lot of good advice along the way. We had some early investors that became mentors. And I mean, for me as a first time venture backed CEO, they were like life changing. And, you know, one of the pieces of advice is that we got is that it it's not just a kitschy term to say, you know, concentrate on one thing, you know, be great, not good at one thing, you know, things like that. That's the truth. Mm -hmm. Like you are dealing with limited engineering resources. There are limited hours in the day. You truly can't pick two things in the early days, or, or at least you couldn't with our level of funding. And so we took that really seriously and we just had to pick a lane knowing full well that we were leaving this other opportunity open and mm -hmm. we wished we didn't have to, but we, we did. Yeah. I want to just ask you about the, the, the funding um, and your investors. Was, did, did you have an easy time convincing investors? I imagine most of them have. I mean, this is a problem that a lot of people can relate to. So was, was it easy to raise money? Was it hard? How did you know how to do that? I didn't know how to do it. It was, no, it was awful. <laughs> we we were unsuccessful for a long time. So we started trying to raise money in about 2007. We didn't successfully raise money until 2009. And, you know, we didn't come from families that had any money. So we didn't have any friends. You know, the concept of the people the used friends to, and family. Yeah, round. people used to say, you should raise a friends and family round. Like, well, our family doesn't have any money and I yeah. don't have that many friends. So like, <laughs> I don't know where this friends and family round is coming from, but it's certainly not from anybody I know. Did you know how much you needed? How did you even figure it out? You know, so I would say 
you know, in the early days when you have no choice but to survive on checks from customers, to survive on cash flows, you actually do have a pretty good idea of what you need because it was just simple math. Like we wanted to hire one more engineer. We wanted to hire one more salesperson. For every one salesperson we hired, we knew how many yeses they could get in a given week or a month or a quarter. We knew how much the customers would pay us. So yeah, you know, we went out asking for about, you know, between 500000 and a million dollars. Okay. We ended up raising $650,000, which was, you know, right in the wheelhouse for what we thought was appropriate mm-hmm. at the time. You know, it sounds small now in hindsight, but back then that meant one more salesperson, which would allow us to hire another salesperson, which would allow us to hire another salesperson. And the math was actually pretty simple. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how many times did you pitch it before you uh, struck gold? Man, oh, I mean, we were like stopping people on the street that looked rich. We didn't know <laughs> anybody. I mean, I don't know, hundreds. Yeah, a, a lot, a lot. And we, you know, we didn't really know what the concept of an angel investor was. We got introduced to angel groups along the way, and the Twin Cities Angels ended up making an investment. And a number of other individual angels ended up coming in eventually, but I'm sure we had pitched it 100 plus times at that point. Mm. Um, The Collaborative, if you remember the Collaborative Mm -hmm. Dan Carr's organization, you know, it was, I don't know how many years in a row I did the second, you know, 60 second, you know, pitch competition up on stage, or I think one year got like the seven minute pitch slot. And we, we met some of our first angel investors that way, who then I talked to, you know, at my booth, you know, after the event. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, across half a dozen individuals and the Twin Cities Angels, we put together that first $650,000 round. Mm-hmm. So, okay, you're focused on enterprise. It's going well. Are you, do you remember what year you actually started making money? I mean, did you become profitable pretty quickly? We, we were pretty disciplined. So, you know, it had been so thin for so long, we never wanted to not control our destiny. So the idea of burning cash and then just raising the next round never sat well with me. It just didn't seem like the right way to do it. So we did always have this goal of reachieving profitability after spending the proceeds that we had raised. So that $650,000 round that we raised lasted us for two years. It got from 2009 to 2011. And by the end of the money, we had become profitable again, at Mm. which point then we didn't need to raise money. And uh, that, of course, then, you know, ironically puts you in a better position to raise money. Mm -hmm. So then we raised a 350, or I'm sorry, a $3.5 million round from Eldorado Ventures, which is when I met Jeff Hink, who's my partner now at Rally Ventures. Um, But that was our first institutional round of financing in 2011. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, at what point did you start to think, gosh, maybe we need to go back and think about that consumer side of this? Yeah. So, I mean, along the way, it was it was a constant topic. So Eldorado and Jeff invested in 2011. Jeff joined the board and, you know, I'd have to ask him, but I don't think there was hardly a board meeting that went by from 2011 until probably 2015 where we didn't debate that topic mm-hmm. and debate is now the right time to launch our own team to build that is now the right time to try to buy our competitor. Mm. You know, what should we do here? And it was a constant debate. It just always ended up ranked second behind making the core product better. And at this point, the core product was being used by what? Do you have any idea how many teams around the country? Yeah. So let's see. In 2011, um, we probably had a thousand sports organizations at that time. I think we were doing, you know, four to five million dollars in annual revenue. Hmm. And, you know, we were, you know, more than doubling the company every year. So, so yeah. So there was good reason to continue to kind of double down on that product. So I, at some point, I know you did make the switch because if it wasn't for Sports Engine, I wouldn't know where my kid was playing when or when he had practices. So, so what happened? 
We did actually continue to hold out longer than you would think. So we raised another round of venture capital from Rally Ventures. Actually, the first ever investment by Rally Ventures was into Sports Engine ah, in 2012. Before fi- you were part of it. That's right. Okay. Yep, a $5.5 million round. At that point, Jeff had left. Jeff and his partner, Charles, had left Eldorado, founded Rally, and then Sports Engine was their first ever investment. That was 2012, and we still were taking that capital and just doubling down on the core product. We raised a $29 million Series C round in 2014 uh, from Piper Jaffrey and Causeway Media. And even then, we still were just doubling down on the core product. So at this point now, it's still four or five years later, and we just decided to keep on doubling down on the enterprise product. I would say in part because we realized that there's about $100 billion per year processed on credit cards in America every year in the United States to sign your sons and daughters up for youth sports. Mm. It's this shockingly large market that, you know, certainly back then no investors appreciated. And we felt like we had insight into it and realized that at that size, there's no reason to ever get out of our lane. Mm -hmm. So it really probably was, I mean, it wasn't really until we sold the company to NBC Sports that we had now the resources to truly build consumer-focused, application-focused engineering teams. So it really wasn't until 2015, 2016 that we decided it's not good enough to only be an enterprise software company anymore. We have to make a great application for these moms and dads. And and is that when you say you have to, I mean, given what you just discussed and how big the market is, why? Does it just because it adds cachet, because it opens another market, or why did that seem inevitable? You know, I think the core of Sports Engine was always that we were effectively a fintech. So long before people understood what a vertical SaaS plus fintech business was, (laughs) Mm -hmm. that's what we were. We were processing billions of dollars in credit card payments per year, storing those funds, distributing those funds. You know, we were a classic vertical fintech company. And when you realize that that's the core economic engine of your business, you start to realize that anything that allows you to be exposed or allows those transactions to potentially occur on somebody else's platform, you need to shut off that potential Mm. point of attack. And companies like TeamSnap that had taken a lot of mind share from mom and dad and frankly just a lot of screen time from mom and dad, they had put themselves in a pretty good position to start to ask these parents and these sports organizations that why don't you just pay your bills on your app? And we knew that in order to continue to control the transaction flow and the financial funds flow, we needed to own the mind share on the phone as well. Mm. Is TeamSnap still around? They are, yeah. They were recently acquired by a private equity group. And, you know, I expect that they're going to be pretty active in M&A and acquiring some other competitors in the space. So it's actually still early days, you know, in the sports tech space. Interesting. Is there a little part of you that's like, oh, I could have stopped that years ago. (laughs) There's a big part of me. (laughs) I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting. These early competitors almost always start as friends because there's very few of you going after a new market together. Mm -hmm. The world's really small and you actually end up spending a lot of time together, whether it's competing on a deal or seeing each other at a trade show or at an industry event. So you you actually build these interesting friendships with your competitors. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I like to think that there was a cohort of us who as much as we went at each other and as much as we'll be competitive forever, Mm -hmm. you know, I think we're really happy for each other, you know, as well. Mutual respect. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about the sale. At the time when you started having those conversations, I mean, you're you're not a, an entrepreneur in a dorm room anymore. I mean, you were running a big company. H- how many employees? At the time, probably about 350 or so. 
did you have like out of body imposter moments? Like how did this happen that I'm now running this enterprise and this is like feeling like an established company? Yeah, I, yeah, I did. And you know, along the way, it, I mean, it happened so fast. You know, we we tell our portfolio companies now, like between 50 and 200 employees, like everything's going to break. It's going to break. The HR systems you thought were solid are not going to work anymore. The job descriptions that you thought were appropriate aren't going to work anymore. The organization chart as currently designed is going to have to be blown up. Why is that? You know, I think in part it's because people, you need different humans sometimes at, you know, two or three or 400 employees than you need it at 50 because they just need a different skill set. But I think in part because it's just the communication doesn't happen organically anymore. And to me, that's actually the biggest thing. So at up to 50 people, you're typically, at least in the traditional office culture, you know, now maybe it's a little bit more via Slack and other tools, but you're talking to everybody. You know, we had our, you know, Thursday morning donut days, you Mm -hmm. know, where everybody grabs a donut, we physically stand in a circle and we all say what we're doing that week, you know, what went well that week, what didn't go well that week. And I mean, you can't make it through a week without understanding what literally every other human in the entire company is doing. We're physically together telling each other. And then somewhere between 50 and 200 employees, that necessarily stops. Mm -hmm. And you almost always forget to put the organic communication tools back in, but back in differently. Hmm. So then all of a sudden, engineering doesn't know what sales is doing. Sales doesn't know what marketing is doing. You create this friction in the company. And then you start to even potentially have some competition between departments who feel like they're not being well represented, you know, in the budget or they need more, you know, headcount or they lose sight of what the overall company vision is. So I think honestly, it's the organic communication that changes and it breaks the whole business. Interesting. As it got bigger and became more of a real grown-up company, did you, were you still having fun? Did, did you enjoy that? You know, I honestly, I had more fun with every passing year. I, I really did. And, you know, I think every entrepreneur probably has a different sweet spot. For me, I had more fun at 200 employees than at 50. I had more fun at 400 employees than 200. I had more fun at 500 employees than 400. Mm -hmm. To me, like that was the fun of it. Like the org design, the organizational design, building out a reporting structure that works, um, architecting something where, you know, all of sales and marketing, you know, are a coherent single group. All of product and engineering is a coherent single group. Being able to, you know, articulate, you know, the vision of the business, being able to articulate what our overall M&A strategy is or our international strategy versus domestic strategy, helping, you know, these people to make, you know, serendipitous connections, you know, within the company, people who otherwise wouldn't meet the org strategy and the HR side of the business. That is actually the most fun for me. Wow. And the bigger. You don't hear it, the, that every day. <laughs> the bigger it got, the more fun it got. I, Interesting. I loved it. And your co-founders, did they stay along for the ride? They did. Yeah. Well, so for the most part, so Mike, my co-founder, Mike, one of our software architects, he stepped aside in 2012 and just had you know other personal desires and personal pursuits. And uh, my other two co-founders, Greg and Carson, they actually left with me on the same day in hmm. 2019. It was actually pretty, pretty neat to all be able to walk out of the building, you know, on that day in September 30th, 2019 together, you know, the same way we walked into it, you know, 15 years prior. So, Unreal. yeah. Did you know you wanted to sell? Had you discussed that? Were you, when, when did the offer start coming in? You know, along the way, I would say, I would say we did... We did a reasonably good job talking with potential acquirers along the way. And 
you know, now, nowadays at Rally, we actually encourage most of our entrepreneurs to do a better job talking to potential acquirers. It's it's something that gets deprioritized typically. But I thought I thought we did a decent job talking to acquirers along the way. So some version of offers were kind of always present, um, but nothing was, you know, attractive enough to, you know, consider until, until NBC, until 2016. And at that time, you know, honestly, it was a NBC was great, like great, great buyer. Like I have nothing but good things to say about them. Tell me when the phone rang. Like I want to know how that (laughs) felt. There you are, Justin Koffenberg, who started this in a dorm room and NBC is calling and wants your company. What did that feel like? Yeah. Yeah. So it was, so it was 2015. And for the, frankly, because of the competitive nature of the industry for the very first time we had considered you know, selling. Mm-hmm. Up to that point, it was just an easy no. And we wanted to raise more money, build a big company, take the company public. And we hmm. were, you know, full on on that, you know, track. And what happened is that a couple of our competitors raised, you know, huge sums of money. They started acquiring a lot of our competitors. And you could see that there was going to be a period of time for a couple of years here where the best product wasn't necessarily going to win. The most heavily capitalized company was going to be at a real advantage for the next couple of years. Mm. And that was a that was like a horribly frustrating realization because you spend all your time saying, if I build the best company, if I build the best product, we should be able to win. But then somebody else raises hundreds of millions of dollars and starts buying up all of your competitors. And you see that there is another dimension to this chessboard. So we started answering the phone at that time, and we had a couple of different things going on. We had a term sheet for additional investment into the company. We had multiple businesses interested in buying the business, and then NBC stepped up and made an offer that was worth seriously considering. And the difference maker ultimately was that their chairman of NBC Sports, Mark Lazarus, this became something that he personally cared about. So when that discussion and that negotiation but became a negotiation between Mark and I, Mm -hmm. and he was able to explain to me, here's why we're making the offer. Here's why we care about this. Here's how it actually fits into the much, much larger NBC sports strategy. It wasn't that he had a kid playing hockey or something. No, no. (laughs) (laughs) Although he had kids and he knew the problem well. Uh Um, But for us to be able to hear that, you know, they had just paid billions of dollars to be the broadcaster of the Olympics through 2032. Mm -hmm. They'd just done an unprecedented 16-year Olympic broadcast deal. And for Mark to be able to say that, you know, Justin, I get these athletes for a couple of weeks, you know, once every other year when we're broadcasting the Olympics, they're going to be customers of yours for 15 years before they get to me. Mm-hmm. You know, like I have, we've got so much invested in amateur athletics with the Olympics that we need to be a healthy, ath, you know, amateur athletic ecosystem. Interesting. We need parents to be, you know, fans of amateur athletics. We need the public to be fans of amateur athletics. You know, I, you basically need to be my funnel for both Olympic athletes and amateur sports fans for, you know, many, many years before I ever get them, you know, for a few minutes on TV. So huh, it was. Wouldn't have seen that. That's so interesting. Yeah, so it was a big vision, and that vision plus the phone ringing, that's what made it worth getting Mm -hmm. serious about. So, I I mean, was it just, I mean, obviously that's big and that's got to feel amazing. At the same time, you built this company, you loved what you were doing, you had this idea of growing it to the point of going public. Was was it hard to move on from that and realize that this was the, the best option? Yeah, it was. It was. It was incredibly hard. Um, you know, for us, this was. You know, a it was a business that we loved, but b it was born out of like the most personal nature. 
I mean, even though it was clearly not a family business, we had raised venture capital, we had raised angel investment, you know, it had become, you know, a real business. It almost felt like a family business, giving kind of the founding story mm -hmm. and the fact that all the founders were still involved and we all had friends and family working there. What about your father? Was he still a consultant? <laughs> you never, you basically never stopped being a consultant, you know, customer and consultant. Uh -huh. um, still is. But uh, yeah, so it was incredibly personal in nature and it was really hard. You know, it was made wildly easier by the fact that, you know, the decision maker at NBC Sports had adopted this as something that, you know, he cared deeply about. And, you know, all the people that we met there were just, you know, legitimately good humans who mm -hmm. really, really, truly did care about amateur athletics and what amateur athletic means. I mean, to us, it's keeps kids healthy. It gives them confidence. It creates these life skills. It's like a really important complement to the classroom and to home. To us, it means a lot. And to them, it meant the same. So that, I mean, honestly, it was the emotional side of the transaction that made it possible. Um, otherwise, I think we probably just would have said no again. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times we hear founders say they're going to stay on, they're for sure going to stay. You did that. You had, I that was, I assume, built into your contract that you were going to stay for a certain amount of time. Did you know as soon as you sold, you were going to end up leaving? I, I didn't, no. And and honestly, even in the end when I did leave, and so I was there for about about three and a half years. And uh, my co-founders were there for three and a half years as well. And, you know, at the end of that time, it was not an easy decision. Um, it really wasn't. I, I loved it. I loved the company. I loved NBC. They had done exactly what they said they were going to do. They had been a great acquirer. They had introduced us to prospective customers. They had given us the resources of NBC and NBC Universal and Comcast. And uh, I mean, it, it was legitimately difficult. Like you could see this opportunity to stay on and make an impact in amateur athletics as a career for the rest of your career. And that'd be a great place to do it. So no, I didn't know that I would leave. And in the end, it wasn't an easy decision to leave. You know, it, in the end, at the end of the day, I felt so compelled to get back to the early days, back to startups, that that's what drove me. But it was a far harder decision than I anticipated. Well, so so talk about that a little bit, because, I mean, I think there are those people who are just they love the start. And then there are those people who love running. Some people can do both. Obviously, you proved that you could. What was it that made you make that decision? You know, I think I get really, really inspired by, you know, those early, early days moments where people who aren't supposed to succeed do. And you know, it's like the ultimate meritocracy. There is nothing preventing you from creating something great. And those, you know, and, and we, we had big chips on our shoulders, you know, Carson and I, and we felt like we, you know, we didn't come from friends and family that had done this before. We didn't come from friends and family that, you know, could become angel investors. And we carried big chips on our shoulder that, you know, we did it without a safety net. And we were really inspired by others who could do it without a safety net. And, so the idea that I could pick a career, you know, like like I have in venture capital, where all day, every day, I'm surrounded by people who have an idea and they believe that they can outwork everybody else in the world to make their idea the one that actually survives and succeeds. Like that was that was just too good to pass up. Hmm. So did you leave knowing that you were going to Rally Ventures? Uh, yes, I knew that I wanted to go to Rally, and I knew that I wanted to go to venture capital. Um, I thought that I would probably take more time off than I did. <laughs> you know, there was an there was an idea that you know we'd spend some time totally away from you know all of this as a family. 
in the end, I just like couldn't wait to get started. And, and I, I literally started at, you know, rally the following day and didn't take a day off. Do you have a specific focus as far as what you're investing in? Yeah. So, so rally specifically, we're roughly, I would say just roughly one third, one third, one third. So we're about one third. So it's all B2B enterprise software. Um, it's about one third cybersecurity. It's about one third what you'd call like core business tools, like core business SaaS. And then it's about one third things that look like sports engine, which are largely fintech, payments and vertical software solutions. So the sports engine of the uh, donor management and philanthropy market, the sports engine of the procurement market, the sports engine of the restaurant market, where you have a core system of record, a core SaaS platform, and then on top of that, you add payments and other fintech tools. Mm -hmm. So that's that's kind of the third of the firm that I focus on specifically. Do, does that still get you excited? I mean, obviously, you know that space. I, I do. And I'm, I've been fortunate in the sense that, you know, it's where I've spent my whole life. And now it just so happens that the world is like waking up to it. And you can't look at like a funding story these days, or you can't look at TechCrunch these days without people talking about the rise of the vertical SaaS platform, the rise of the embedded fintech platform. Like it, it is, you know, it's a hot market. Why now? Is it that technology has caught up? Uh, you know, I think that, I mean, frankly, just not a lot of it existed before, you know, in the sense that the tools necessary to actually do this, when we were doing it at Sports Engine, we were basically building all this stuff from scratch. Like when we said we want to build a payment processing, credit card payment processing engine on top of our core SaaS tool, that meant that we were literally going to go out and write, you know, an unbelievable amount of proprietary code to, a, I mean, we basically had to build Stripe. And then you have to build Salesforce for CRM capabilities. There was no Stripe. There was no Salesforce. There were no third-party tools to plug into. So you were writing proprietary code and basically creating it all from scratch, Mm -hmm. which is just incredibly taxing and it takes forever. So fast forward to today, and now there are a whole host of companies that support this SaaS plus vertical fintech kind of stack. Mm -hmm. So you can just bring a company like this to market radically quicker than you used to be able to and that's exactly what's happened but does it is it harder today because there's more competition and there's more noise and now it's easier to 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 get in than when you did it yeah there that's definitely true i mean there the amount of companies being formed and good companies being formed that are well built good software tools is like totally remarkable like we've never had a pipeline of potential companies to invest in like the one we have right now so you're 100 percent right in that regard. But I I do still think that the advantages of being able to move more quickly, the advantages of having these tools to be able to leverage rather than writing every line of code yourself far outweigh any amount of competition, in part because the pie keeps getting bigger simultaneously. So while there's more competitors coming in, the markets are just bigger than anybody could have dreamt. Like we, we keep seeing that, you know, Uber was the classic example, like the black car market is tiny. Well, of course, it wasn't the black car market. It was the moving humans and goods market, right. which is unbelievably enormous. And so many industries are going through a similar like aha moment right now where the opportunity is so much larger than originally anticipated Hmm. that you can almost have as many competitors as you want. It's still big enough for everyone. Any examples without giving away all your trade secrets? Well, you know, so we've got a portfolio company called Bebot, uh, which is a basically the sports engine of restaurants. It's effectively a software management platform to manage restaurants and all of their transactions. So they're in-facility dining transactions, paying your bill, 
has all the the fintech nuance to be able to order online, to order remotely, the crazy edge cases to be able to split a tab many different ways, the ability to, if you're in a hotel and you're ordering from the hotel restaurant, send the bill to your room, split that multiple ways. Like the, mm. There's an enormous amount of complexity around transacting payments and hospitality, mm-hmm. for example. So when you first looked at Bebot, you said, oh, that's that's kind of a nice idea. They could put QR codes on tables and diners could you know pay with their phone. Like, that's kind of cute. And then you realize that there's like $1.9 trillion per year transacted in the hospitality industry to buy food, like a multi-trillion dollar market. I mean, you could build a company bigger than Google just on hospitality fintech if you build a platform that's you know appropriately architected and agnostic to handle all those edge cases. So all of a sudden, the vision for Bebot gets much, much larger than we originally thought it was. I mean, some version of that is happening like in almost every market. What did the pandemic do to your world into all of these sorts of fintech endeavors? So I would say from a fintech uh, angle specifically, it just greatly accelerated it. In the case of Bebot, they went from, you know, zero to many, many times more than we expected they would in the matter of 12 months because of the pandemic. You know, it forced the ability to pay remotely, to pay online, things like that. So some industries, it created great tailwinds. I would say in the venture industry overall, it totally changed how we do our business. Um, you know, when I was raising money years ago, when I was a CEO and a founder on the other side of the table, like you weren't going to get a check unless you had built a personal bond with a potential investor. It was mm. a lot of time in person. Yep. A lot of it was pitching, but a lot of it was just getting to know each other. And I think investors, they believed that that aspect of the due diligence process was a critical one. Like if they couldn't look that person in the eye, if they couldn't believe what they were saying, if they didn't have faith in that person as a person, they weren't going to write the check. Mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden that goes entirely out the window. And you need to come to those conclusions via Zoom. Mm -hmm. And you need to come to those conclusions via spreadsheet that's emailed over. So it kind of blew up the entire due diligence process. On one hand, it allowed us to do more deals faster because you can meet a lot more people on Zoom than you can on an airplane. Sure. But it frankly really put at risk that portion of the due diligence process, which is how well do you know these founders? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they're often inexperienced, so you're betting on their ability to learn fast. Are you getting back to that? We are. Yeah, I mean, we can't get back to it fast enough as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I I love that in-person interaction and energy. And I co-hosted a fintech dinner in New York City a few weeks ago. And we, I mean, had to cap the attendance. Like, it was packed. It was Hmm. awesome. It was just so good. And it's all founders of of companies similar to to yours? Yeah, exactly. Yep, exactly. So in some cases, it was a couple other investors that have a focus in that industry, just like we do. But the overwhelming majority of the attendees were founders or prospective founders. I, I can sense that you make a great mentor, but I just have to wonder, is there a little part of you that's looking for the next uh, big idea? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's actually, actually when I joined Rally, one of the things that Jeff and Charles, the two founders of the firm, told me is that, you know, if you're willing to join, then, you know, you can basically spend most of your time making traditional venture investments, but you can spend some of your time still starting companies and actually spinning them out of Rally. And that to me was what like made this the dream job. Like th- that's what makes this what I want to do for the rest of my for the rest of my life. Um, so I, that that's what I do. So I spend the majority of my time making traditional investments and in traditional venture capital work, but do spend quite a bit of time basically incubating an idea, uh, hiring an engineering team to build the idea, 
uh, bringing in co-founders and other team members, getting the product to life, getting first customers, putting the first capital into it, and then effectively spinning it out and you know bringing it to the world. And have you done that? Yep, already? Done, done that twice in the last two years. Um, Anything that's working? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the first uh, the first version of that was a company called Yardstick. Um, so Yardstick was based on our observation at Sports Engine, which is that. So at Sports Engine, we came to the realization that you can't you can't leave your kid with a coach that you don't know. Like that's not acceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, I had been involved with the United, uh, the U.S. Center for Safe Sport, had spent a lot of time with the USA Gymnastics team, had spent a lot of time with those athletes who had been telling their story about abuse. And yeah. it was hugely impactful to the industry, to me, to everybody. Mm-hmm. And there was just this tipping point where it was clearly never going to be acceptable again to drop your son or daughter off at a sporting event where the coach or the instructor or the athletic trainer wasn't background screen certified, fully vetted, and available for you to check their record. Mm-hmm. So at Sports Engine, we jumped full into that industry and we built a background screening plus certification management engine. And that division of our business exploded because we already had millions of coaches on the platform. So we already had the existing install base and we were just able to tell all of our customers that now push all of them through our background screening and certification engine to deem that they are safe. Mm-hmm. And when I left Sports Engine, we realized that there are tens of thousands of other companies like Sports Engine, those that manage YMCAs, those software companies that power schools, software companies that power daycare, software companies that power churches, software companies that power hospitals. They should all have a fully integrated, fully embeddable background screening plus certification management engine, no different than Sports Engine did. But that didn't exist. Huh. So that was that's what Yardstick is. It's a full white label, full API driven, fully embeddable background screening plus certification plus training engine. Um, so Matt Meets is my co-founder in that business. Matt was previously the founder, one of the founders of Magnet 360, which was a very successful company. We built a great team around it, rally invested capital into it, and they are now out and live with millions in revenue and customers and doing great. Amazing. And do you stay involved in any capacity? Yeah. So I stay on the board as a board member and investor, and then in an informal way, just incredibly involved in the business. Um, You know, spend a ton of time with Matt, a ton of time with the rest of the team. You know, I'll never stop being as passionate about it as I am now. So there's the formal board seat, and then there's the informal engagement, which is which is a lot. And then you have another one that you're working on too? We did, yeah. So we're just bringing to market now another company called Justify. Um, So Justify is kind of the reimagination of the intelligent credit card processing brain that we had been exposed to at Sports Engine. So at Sports Engine, we had effectively come up with this concept that if you analyze a credit card transaction while it is in mid-flight and you potentially manipulate or reroute or reclassify that transaction, it will process at a dramatically lower rate. Hmm. Most people don't realize that when you put your credit card in and buy a good or service, it's just going to process at effectively the rate that Visa MasterCard defaulted to. And it shouldn't. If it's a nonprofit transaction, that should be rerouted as a nonprofit transaction, which processes at a lower rate. Wow. If it contains the right amount of product level information, SKU level information, product description data, zip code, it should process at a lower rate, but typically doesn't. If it's the right type of debit transaction, it should process at the, a lower transaction, but it typically doesn't. And so most companies don't realize that their volume of credit cards that get processed through their system are done at a much higher rate than they deserve to be. It's almost like doing your 
taxes without TurboTax. You're just, you know, TurboTax sure. actually helps you to optimize your taxes based on the IRS tax code. Right. It's giving no, you the best deal. That's right. No such thing exists in payment processing. Um, so Justify is the creation of that brain made available to anybody in the world to be able to route their credit card transactions through, have dramatically lower rates than they otherwise would have. And then also the ability to add on similar fintech features like we did at Sports Engine, the ability to lend to your customers, to do card issuing to your customers, effectively a full stack white label neobank to drop right into your vertical SaaS platform to be able to do what we did at Sports Look Engine. Look at all of the other <laughs> niches and holes that you found out of this one lane that you went down. Could you ever have imagined no, it's just, you know, when you're that close to it for that long, you know, you do feel like you see these opportunities in maybe a little bit of a unique, unique yeah. way. So what is your best advice for entrepreneurs? Um, more than anything else, I would say, to, to, the, to those on the early end, I would say more than anything else, just start. Like, just do it. If you can at all humanly afford to start, and I don't say that lightly because not... You know, we started pretty young. I mean, we had no money, we had no safety net, but we also didn't have a lot of liabilities either. So the fact that we got paid zero for years, um, I mean, we, we would paint a house to survive when we needed a couple extra bucks to make rent. Mm -hmm. I would just say if you can if you can physically survive, if you can afford to do it, just start. Like just stop doing what you're currently doing and just start because the idea is never gonna be right. The first direction is definitely not gonna be right. Like the only thing that you know for sure is whatever your idea was on the first day is wrong on the second. Hmm. But you can't get to the right idea if you don't get moving. So I would say just start even when you're totally uncomfortable, if, if you can. What is your best advice for a successful pitch? You've been the person in the room doing that. Now you're on the receiving end. What makes a good standout pitch? Oh, man, that's a loaded question. There's so <laughs> many answers to that. I would say like above all else, though, be concise and use plain language. Hmm. Like I think entrepreneurs, they know their idea so well. They know their industry so well. They're typically very bright and they often want to explain everything in great detail and with a level of technical language that most don't other most don't understand and even very seasoned investors i mean it's a running joke people walk out of a pitch from us or log off of a zoom call and my partners have been doing this for 25 years and we'll look at each other and say we don't know what they do hmm. so when, when you're saying that you have a fintech platform for sports don't say that Say that you process credit cards that mom and dad enter to sign their son or daughter up for soccer, you know, and you hold those funds and then you pay those funds out to the sports facility where those kids play. Like, be that plain. Yeah. Um, it's It doesn't happen often enough. Great advice. Um, what about, and this seems the hardest to me anyway, identifying the white space. You You did it so successfully when you were just a college student. You continue to do it now. What what about people who are like, I just want to find, you know, it seems so obvious once someone like you, you know, points it out. But if you're looking for that thing or you don't quite have it, is there a way to find it or is it luck? No, it's definitely not luck. You know, I think that it does come back to that concept of get something in customers' hands as early as humanly possible. And so it goes back to A, just start before you're comfortable, be sell before you're comfortable because the white space is almost never obvious. If it were obvious, there would already be a bunch of people filling it. So the white space is almost always this like novel observation and this deep industry specific nuance that nobody else has quite realized exists yet. 
And the people who are in the industry day to day, usually your customers or prospective customers are typically the only ones that are going to take you there. Like at Rally, for example, we have all of our companies, especially the ones that we help to start inside of Rally, we have all of them go through what we call a customer council, a customer advisory council. And that means that you need to find 20 to 40 prospective customers and you need to put them in a formal advisory council. And that doesn't mean that you ask them a few questions. That means that you bring them in before you've written a line of code. You tell them who you are. You tell them what your idea is. You allow them to absolutely beat it up. This is a formal in-person meeting or a Zoom meeting, formal slide deck. Meeting number two, you show them the early iterations of their your product. You tell them to tear it apart. It's a very formal meeting. Meeting number three, you show them the next iteration of your product and they have to tear it apart. Like a very you know sequential series of steps that basically allow these prospective customers to tear your idea apart over and hmm. over and over. If you're not doing that, like we're not interested in investing in your company at that stage. Interesting. Meanwhile, as you continue to do this and, and grow and evolve, Sports Engine will always be your legacy. I, 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 I wonder how it feels. You are now a father of three. Mm-hmm. Girl, boy, girl. Girl, boy, girl. Okay. Um, all uh, athletes? They are, yes. How many sports do you have going right oh, now? Oh, boy. Um, yeah, hockey, baseball, golf, swimming, tennis. <laughs> There's more, I'm sure. And how many are you coaching? <laughs> on the hockey side, I coach all three of them. All three. On, on the lacrosse side, you know, somebody else does the work. So, I, yeah, no, I, I love it. I'm at the rink every single day. So you are now the customer who you were trying to solve for. What does that feel like? I mean, well, it's a real point of pride, to be honest with you. Like every single day I'm logging into Sports Engine and, you know, we're running our lives from it. And, you know, I'm, I am I live in the Stillwater area and I'm surrounded by other parents, you know, in the area using the same thing, most of whom have no idea that I ever had any involvement with the company. And <laughs> so I, I take great pride in looking around the locker room at any given moment while everybody is, you know, on the app, on their phone, trying to figure out, you know, where to go for the next game or practice. So do you help them press a couple <laughs> buttons? I try, I try, I try, I try not to. It's under settings. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's tempting, but I try not to. And is it, are do you have any advisory board role, anything with Sports Engine? Is it hard to disconnect completely? It, it is hard, but you know, the company was very, very fortunate to have great people, like great people when I left. And, you know, the people who took over when I departed, I mean, these are senior people. They're super, super talented. They can do the job just as well as I could do the job. Um, you know, I'm always here if anything is needed, but they don't need much. You know, they've been there for many years. They know how to run the company. They know how to run sales. They know how to run product and engineering. Um yeah, no, they, and, and they, you feel good it. about where you left it. Yeah, no, I, I, I do. I mean, yeah. it's you know, if we go back to the f- very first iterations of it, long before it was ever called Sports Engine, you know, from 2001 to 2019, that's you know, 18 years. Um, you know, I felt like we, you know, we didn't do everything right, that's for sure. But I felt like we did everything we could in that time. Your dad must be awfully proud. <laughs> yeah, I, I think he is. And it's, you know, I still talk to him, you know, every single week, you know, oftentimes, you know, almost every day about this type of stuff. And mm-hmm. I value his opinion. And yeah, I mean, I, I love talking about this stuff. Do you sit around the kitchen table with your kids now dreaming up ideas? <laughs> you know, we have. Do you want them to be entrepreneurs? I do. I do. I really do. Yeah, no, we we encourage them anytime they have an idea or they have a problem. Like we, we tell them like, well, you should do that. You should try it. You should start a company. And, you know, the art will be in trying to make sure that they've got, you know, basically the level of support that I got from my mom and dad. Um, 
but I don't want to give them any help. You know, I think, you know, the magic in entrepreneurship is figuring things out. And, you know, to get too much help, I think, is really stealing from them. So, you know, I'm trying to, at least as much as possible, kind of emulate the same situation I had growing Hmm. up. Wow. Well, good luck with that. (laughs) Well, that is great. What a great story, Justin. Thank you for taking us on the journey. It's it's so cool. And it's got to just be so gratifying to to see your hard work out in the world and and solving problems for so many people. Yeah, no, I I really enjoyed it. No, this is, I mean, it's it's such a fun topic to talk about. So, yeah, I appreciate you having me. What a great story, and still, I cannot imagine getting through youth sports without my Sports Engine app. Seriously, hard to believe it didn't exist just a decade or so ago. Well, for more perspective on everything that Justin accomplished and all of the great lessons in entrepreneurship, let's go back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. Alec Johnson is an associate professor in the Department of Entrepreneurship at St. Thomas. Alec, so curious what your take was listening to Justin's story, especially the fact that this business, which was really aimed at at adults, parents, coaches, started in his own dorm room. Well, I was fascinated with this story because I'm a failed tech entrepreneur. So I, <laughs> I recognized, you know, a lot of the mistakes he avoided, I made. So that, that was, I appreciated. And uh, in particular, his encouragement of young people to just, you know, in my words, pick up the mitt and get in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this idea uh, that, you know, the cost of failure when you're young, when you're in college can be quite a bit lower than at other points in your life. Right. I, and, and I think there's a, there, there's a belief in, in our society that you, you have to work and have to have experience first to then tackle the career of entrepreneurship. And Justin, you know, is the example that proves the case that you don't, that's just not true. And, and there's a lot of advantage to starting young. Well, I think the the fact that it was ingrained in him from such a young age and that he was really looking for a problem to solve. How important is that? Well, we, we, you know, certainly anecdotally, we see that students who end up starting businesses are quite frequently shaped by their parents' careers. Hmm. Likewise, if parents, you know, go and work in a Fortune 500 in town, students are more apt, it appears to me, to follow that path. And so it doesn't surprise me. And I grew up in a household of, of entrepreneurs. So I was heavily influenced in a career path that way. So it, it didn't really surprise me. I, I think what was really uh, compelling about Justin's journey is his attachment to why he was pursuing the particular business he was pursuing. Mm -hmm. It makes it easy when you understand the problem and you're really passionate about solving it. And we we talk about passion so much in in the entrepreneurship field. And and people, I think, get confused that, you know, the passion or the purpose has to be some extremely large, lofty societal goal. And it really doesn't. Um, It it can be something smaller, like improving the lives of these uh, parent coaching roles that Mm -hmm. people take on. And you hear him repeat that all the way through the story. 
right up to NBC's acquisition and how important it was for him to hear the NBC leadership reflect that value back to him. Right, right. That's a really good point. Well, since you brought up the acquisition, let's talk about that just briefly. Um, Hard to know, especially when it's something that you've built and, and you've spent years working on, when it's time to let go. Um, and and what the right move is. What is your guidance or advice on that? Well, nobody knows the right time. And, and I've watched so many of our alums from St. Thomas go through this process. And it looks different to every business. I think the point he made regarding knowing it was the right time because of what his competitors were doing mm-hmm. and their acquisition process and this very cautionary tale that at that stage, the best product isn't the one that's necessarily going to win in the market. That repeats itself over and over. So I was very impressed that he recognized that moment. Yeah. Um, And and in part, he did it because he surrounded himself with really good people to help him recognize, recognize that moment. And, um, and the team, right? He, he always talked about his team, whether it was his co-founders or the advisors he surrounded himself with. Yeah. Nobody accomplishes anything worth doing alone. Right. There's always a great team. I, well, I, I love that image of him walking out of the building that last day uh, with his co-founders. That's, that's pretty impactful. And when I listened to the talk, I, I pictured the exact same thing. Journey is so beautiful. It really is. It, um, it makes for a, a great full circle story. Um, if you had to, to, to call out one takeaway that you hope people leave this episode with after hearing Justin's story, what would it be? Um, it would be two. <laughs> would be two <laughs> okay, of, um, we'll allow that. Putting yourself in a position to have a low cost of failure is one of them. Uh, that is, to me, very, very an important thing that anybody can do as they're planning their entrepreneurial journey. Mm-hmm. And then and then just knowing your purpose. And, and when my tech startup failed, I, I would argue we did not have the quality or strength of purpose that Justin had in his. And, and I have often cited that that was one of the major factors that led us to not being successful. Hmm. We didn't have the same purpose or why yeah. involved in it. Know your why. Great advice. Know your why. Alec Johnson, thank you so much for spending some time with us and talking about this episode. Thank you to our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas, Opus College of Business as well. Great chatting with you, Alec. Thank you, Allison. If you like what you heard, take a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps the show. If you want to know more about By All Means and explore other stories of entrepreneurship, go to tcbmag.com slash byallmeans. Thanks again for listening to By All Means. teamwork to make by all means and we've got some all-stars thanks to our audio engineer tom for digital support is ricky hannigan and dan nepo 
thanks to the University of St. Thomas Senior Media Relations Manager, Vanita Sakar and Associate Dean of the Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, Laura Dunham, for all their help. Our theme music is by Songfinch. Hope you enjoyed By All Means. Thank you.